Good morning. How we doing? We have a good Thanksgiving? Mostly? Good. We had a good time here at the building, those who were able to come. Uh, tons of yummy food. Well, maybe not tons, but maybe close to a ton. Well, not even that. There were probably a couple hundred pounds of really yummy food, we'll say that. And uh, good fellowship and a good time together. And uh, wherever you were celebrating that day, I hope it went well. And I hope you had community around you. I hope you weren't alone for that. Uh, and even if you were, the Lord is with us when we're alone. I am just tickled pink and thankful for a lot of different things. But I don't know if you noticed, and we've been praying for a long time, but Bernie and Mary Moore are with us this morning. They have had a long road with this whole COVID business, and, uh, but they're feeling better and they're back with us, praise God. So we have been in this series, The Kingdom of God, and uh, it's been, I've been going from Genesis, the very beginning, to help us build very carefully. We've been stopping and smelling the roses, so to speak, uh, because this idea of God's kingdom, it has developed, our understanding of it has developed over time. And you can trace this out just in the biblical narrative, I think. And how in the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, um, many of the people of Israel and Judah, they broke covenant faithfulness with their Lord and became uh, concerned with other things. And so we have looked at different phases, uh, iterations of the development of the kingdom of God. We started in... Uh, Torah, and then we looked at the conquests, judges, early monarchy, and then last week we talked about the prophet Elijah, and uh, some very unique contributions there to the understanding, and it's a kingdom under judgment. And today we continue that, uh, that study in the prophets, because there's just so much there in the prophets, and uh, wonderful stuff that we really uh, need to look at. Uh, and we can see in these stories in the Old Testament some things already about the personality of God, what he's like, what his kingdom is about. He is a God who is intimately involved in human history. He's involved in the things that are going on back then and to this day. He has a plan. He has purposes that he's accomplishing despite what circumstances are going on, uh, the Lord's purposes prevail and move forward constantly. Um, but by and large, there were times in the, in the two kingdoms uh, that people knew clearly that, you know, we're supposed to be the kingdom of God, but there are clearly things going on in these kingdoms that are not the will of God. Uh, and still, we are supposed to be the embodiment of God's kingdom, and we are supposed to be a light to the nations. And because we know this, well, that kind of led to this elitist, I don't know what you call it, kind of thinking like, 
ultimately we can do no wrong. Ultimately, we know we're God's chosen people. We know we are the people of the book, of the promise. We know we have the right forms. We can do no wrong. And so you get all of these partial truths from religious leaders of the day uh, that really just serve to whitewash and bless and rubber stamp the existing culture. And they became incapable of critiquing the culture they were a part of. Priests and prophets who became so corrupted that they were completely incapable of calling a, a culture around them to repentance. You need to repent. And so I talked about this last week a little bit uh, in Elijah. So uh, the state is God's kingdom. Israel is the totality of God's kingdom. Israel at its very best had the possibility to participate in the things of God's kingdom. But that kind of thinking, it just the kingdom of God is Israel, it kind of put... And that same kind of thinking today might be the kingdom of God is the church. They're the same thing. And it's trying to put the kingdom in much too small of a box. Uh, we are God's chosen people. Uh, how you're born, your heredity, that's what matters. You're, if you're Jewish, if you're this, if you're... And we give thanks, uh, or we give God rituals, and we provide thanks and prayers to him. And their God's job is to bring blessings. So these are, again, these are partial truths that when taken wrong, they became, become insidious. And it turns religion into kind of a financial transaction. Uh, uh, the blessings come down and the prayers go up. Not the, the sweetness of that sentiment, but taking it as a this pl plus this or this equals this kind of mentality and thinking. Uh, and we still have tricky things to navigate with that today, uh, with our finances, with our understanding of the way God works. We are not a health and wealth kind of gospel kind of place. Those are not necessarily the same things. Um, God doesn't promise you you're going to be a millionaire. God doesn't promise you that it's all going to go right financially and you're going to be comfortable and you're going to be this, that, or the other. He promises you a cross. And uh, you would think maybe that's not a message that's going to fly or carry over very well, but it is the truth of what we have and what we've been given. Uh, the king is God's chosen son. So whatever the king says, well, it must be the will of God. And so when you get crooked kings, they tend to look the other way toward the sins that they were involved in and the ways that they led people into uh, overt paganism and things like that. So the, 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 what you deduce from this kind of thinking is, you know what, it doesn't really matter what we do because... We've got the promises, we've got the right forms, we are the church, we are the, we are the kingdom, whatever. God is basically just going to take care of us. And this whole idea of covenant loyalty and faithfulness just kind of goes out the window. Therefore, God is just there to eternally prop up and defend the state government basically. 
and then all the purposes of God in history are equated with rubber stamping the culture as it exists. And I think that's a very relevant temptation for us as well. And churches today face tremendous pressure to not say certain things uh, and just don't rock the boat, just go with the flow, don't talk about these controversial things. Calvin, don't talk about sexuality, don't talk about what the Bible says about life or this, that, or the other. Certainly, please don't talk about women's roles or whatever. You fill in the blank. It's a, we make these kind of minefields. So while the prophet Elijah, he dealt with an external pagan threat uh, from competing religions, paganism of that day, the, the Baal worship, the Asherah worship, it was a competing religion. Uh, it's a competing kingdom. It was, in a sense, an invasion. And today we're going to spend some time with the prophet Amos. And Amos is dealing with something much more insidious, I think, uh, Elijah was dealing with an invasion. Amos was dealing with a coup d'etat, an internal rebellion against God that kept the right language, that kept the right forms, that kept the right names, but hearts had gone astray. So this is what you have in Amos, the religion that he confronts. All the right forms are there. The doctrine is correct. The altars are in place. The prayers offered up are perfect in their wording, in their presentation. The people are committed. The worship is vigorous. There's not a hair out of place. And yet the heart is all wrong. The heart is wrong. The Israel of this time is a nation with secure borders, defined. Uh, they had a military at this time that instilled great confidence. Uh, the Israel of this time is a kingdom unparalleled in that history of the people. Uh, with wealth and prosperity. What, what started with Solomon just continued to blossom and grow. Every out external indication is of a nation flourishing. This is an arrogant nation, complacent and comfortable in the knowledge that they are God's special chosen people. And yet for all of the great things that existed at this time, uh, they remain a kingdom under judgment. They don't even see their own need or their own sickness. And to this great nation of Israel, the Lord sends an unlikely critic. Amos, he was not, by his own admission, 
a priest or a prophet. He wasn't even on the payroll, so to speak. He had no special stipend or consideration. He was a herdsman, a shepherd from some backwater podunk little town on the fringe of the Judean wilderness, an obscure little man from a place of no consequence whatsoever. Amos's only credentials that he comes with then is the word of Yahweh that demanded to be spoken. A word of God that demanded to be spoken. Amos was a man of charisma, not called to lead the state or become a leader of the people to deliver them from a national emergency like the judges. Instead, his gifting in the spirit was to call the state and the people to repentance once again. So Amos, a different kind of guy with a different kind of mission from the Lord, he comes as an unlikely critic. And when he sees Israel, he sees cracks. He sees division everywhere. He sees there, yes, there is wealth unheard of, which knows every luxury that money could buy at that time. And yet for all that wealth, there is still bitter and hopeless poverty. There was existing there a level of greed and vanity that just doesn't have a conscience. A culture that values property above other people, even above God. And the religion of this day it was equally sick. The shrines were busy. The shrines were rich. They are filled with worshipers. The Jewish cult, though, had degraded to a point where religion really was, we'll do our part, God, and you do your part. And this transactional relationship existed. The Lord says this about that. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. Look at our wealth. Look at what we're giving. Look at what we're doing. Isn't it amazing? And this is a broken system that tolerates the grossest immorality. So another prophet's words here to describe the situation of this degrading kingdom. The more the priests increased, 
the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. The more sinful the people became, the more the sacrifices came and poured in, the richer they became, the fatter they became, the wealthier they became. They have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, which take away the understanding of my people. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Basically, there's no rebuke left as long as you put your money in the tray or in the little box in the back or you click the right buttons online. And Amos's rebuke, it's not just against gross sins that are being tolerated, that kind of look the other way. Amos's rebuke really is against luxury-loving ease that places my own personal comfort as more valuable than the needs of others. My way, right away. Whatever I want, just do it. Calvin, treat yourself. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. And Amos just throws this prophecy out there, these judgments out there. And uh, he really is an equal opportunity offender. He says to the women of his day, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. You know, I don't know the etymological development of words through the ages in different cultures, but I've never thought it's a very good thing for women to be called cows. Women who spend hours obsessing over hair or makeup or the right clothes or the right food or the right drink or the right comfort, but care nothing about the poor, care nothing about the broken people around them, care nothing about those who are oppressed.
It's a broken system that thinks everything is pretty much okay. As long as we keep smiling, as long as we keep doing our forms right, as long as the the money keeps rolling in. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. The society of Amos' time in northern Israel, they desperately needed criticism. And yet the established religion that was very vigorous and had all the right forms, it was a religious system that perpetrated the brokenness of the state government. And they proved to be incapable of either self-criticism or even the ability to call people to repentance. To be able to say, that's not good for you that's going to kill you. That is not the will of God. This is not holy. They could no longer say those words. And it makes me wonder about my day and time. It's so long ago. And yet the relevance to our time, it's so striking to me. How many pulpits, how many ministers, how many worshipers have been so co-opted by the culture that they're incapable of calling people to repent about anything? And it's a hard word because I wonder that about myself. Where have I given up and where have I given in? Where do I dare to tread? Where am I incapable of calling people to repentance? You know, our culture and the biblical teaching on sexuality are definitely at odds. What the Bible teaches is sex in a heterosexual monogamous relationship within the covenant of marriage, and that covenant is supposed to be for life. You know, historically, the Christian sexual ethic, even if it has not been practiced, even if you're in rebellion against it, people have understood it. Even if, even if they did refuse to practice this. Now, the Word of God and those who deliver it, it's considered to be hate speech. And other things I think about 
undesirable adjectives that people would attach to me or those here who of us who would dare to say, I am pro-life. Who would dare to say things and suggest even and look at maybe a little critically and think, you know what? I think this abortion industry as it exists in this nation, it is not the will of God. And maybe I am politically incorrect. Maybe I'm brainwashed on some level. May it be your spirit, Lord. Maybe I am uninformed. Maybe I'm just dangerous for saying things like the vast majority of abortions that take place in this country are murders for the sake of convenience. Unwanted pregnancies that are largely the result of a loose and broken sexual ethic. And I feel out of step with my generation. This is the kind of nonsense that boomers spew, but you're a Gen Xer, Calvin. You should really know better. You should be more enlightened than that. And that pressure to just keep your mouth shut about certain things. Because I find myself at odds with the majority of the friends I have that I went to seminary with, who we got the same fancy degrees from Abilene and Pepperdine to David Lipscomb. And they're either annoyed or dismayed with me and really wish I would not say anything just because I'm too dense to keep up with the theological gymnastics that would allow me to disregard, disregard and push past a clear word of the Lord. I'm not an angry person. And all I want is love. And all I want is Jesus. And no doubt I make a lot of mistakes. And I have a lot that I can learn. And I need to learn how to do a better job communicating certain things from this pulpit. I understand all of that. But at the end of the day, I'm really skeptical about any form of Christianity that becomes about my own happiness, my own fulfillment, where I don't have to become a living sacrifice, where I don't have to daily take up a cross. It's just whatever I want it to be. So for his words... Amos was labeled as a terrorist, a traitor, and a troublemaker, a revolutionary. He's an enemy of the state. And by and large, his words seem to have fallen on deaf ears. Such a strange sermon to follow Thanksgiving holiday, is it not? And yet the harshness of Amos's prophecy and his critique, it builds on a growing understanding of the kingdom of God. 
in Amos and the prophets that were to follow him, it becomes clear to people that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel, those are two different things. To a people assured of their own election as the people of God by heredity, arrogant in their comfort and wealth, an obscure herdsman from the middle of nowhere, Judah, comes with a message. The true people of God will be identified by justice and righteousness. Where's the justice? Where's the righteousness? Where's the truth? of the word of the Lord. Amos was a man of the ancient ways. He was zealous for the Lord his God, and he would not compromise, and he would not back down. Ron, you can make your way up here. And uh, if you need to put the Lord on in baptism or you'd like the prayers of this church, you can come see me up front after we stand and sing. But a couple things I want to point out before we're done this morning. You know, it's, I think you can have a hard heart. You can have a seared conscience, but still not miss the similarities between Israel, the Israel of Amos' time, in our nation right now, a society with injustice, a society that has greed, a society filled with immorality, a society that is pleasure, pleasure-loving, take it easy, just do what feels right, a culture captivated by vain and empty things. So from Amos' mouth, his own words. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. They do not know how to do right. They brag about their religious devotion and they hate the one who reproves Rubber baby buggy bumpers. They hate the one who (laughs) reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. The truth is no longer welcome here in this place. From Amos' own words. And even as harsh as this is, the prophecies of Amos, I think just by looking at uh, his critiques, we can learn a lot about the kingdom of God. Because if you look at the antonyms of his criticisms, the other side, you flip that coin over, there is a kingdom that is very different. There's a kingdom available to us where there is no more sin and immorality. The secret sins, whatever, they're gone. 
and the worship, it doesn't just have the right forms in the right order, sound right. That worship comes with the right heart. There's not a heart that's blind to God, blind to their own brokenness and neediness, blind to my neighbor. There is a kingdom that values people above things. Where people are more important than my possessions. There is a kingdom that exists and is available to us where there is always justice and righteousness always flows. There's a kingdom available to us where there's not a distinction between the haves and the have-nots. Because everyone has the Lord. And when you have the Lord, you have everything. This is a kingdom that is available to us. Even amidst the brokenness and competition of other kingdoms all around us. And so while that word of the prophet Amos and this sermon may come across as pretty harsh, I don't apologize for it. Because I think there's beauty in it. And there's a lot to be thankful for in it. Because God gives us something beautiful. A kingdom that we get to participate in. Where all the things that are broken, they are right in that kingdom. And we access it uniquely through Jesus Christ himself. So let's stand and sing together.